Well, of all the things that I have forgotten over the years, uh, especially from my college days, there's one thing that uh, I forgot that I, I, I regret forgetting, and that is how to solve this bad boy right there. I used to know how to do it, and, and, and it was ubiquitous on my college campus. You might remember back in the 80s when the Rubik's Cube was everywhere. And, and I would go anywhere. I'd go into a lobby or into a dorm room, and there would be an un unsolved Rubik's Cube. And I would stand there, and I would just start playing with it like everybody else did. Nobody noticed what I was doing, because everybody did that back then. And I'd be playing with it, and I'd be solving it as I was playing with it, and talking to people along the way. And then when the person I was with turned their back or stepped out of the room, I'd finish it, and I'd sit on the shelf and just see what they did. You know, if they came in, sometimes they didn't notice at all. <laughs> that it had been solved. <laughs> but sometimes they'd notice and they'd go, what, what, how, what? And I'd say, it was like that when I came in. Did you do that? You know, I was playing around with them a little bit. Because it was really unique, because what started as a cube of confusion with colors became a cube where the, where the colors were all ordered and put in the right place. What was once divided became unified. It'd be, it was restored back to what the original creator intended, what Mr. Rubik, I guess is his name, intended the cube to be because that's the way we receive it with all the colors all aligned on the proper sides, and then we mess it up. With that picture in your mind of a fully solved Rubik's cube, let's just keep that in our heads as we go to our text today. In John 4, 21 through 24, Jesus was talking to somebody that he was not supposed to be talking to at all. Remember this, that he blew, he blew through so many social norms when he went and he asked a Samaritan woman for a drink from her pitcher, from her jar. Jesus then started with that point of disagreement, and he brought it skillfully to a level where they were talking about spiritual things. And I want to pick it up there in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim that it's here at Mount Gerizim? That's where our ancestors worshipped. Now, now, this was a key point of contention for both groups, for Jews and for the Samaritans. And they both had strong reasons why they held to their, their belief in this. So strongly did they hold these beliefs that about 150 years prior to this moment, during the Maccabean era, uh, some leaders, Jewish leaders, came and they destroyed the massive Samaritan temple that was on Mount Gerizim. Didn't make for many friends, but it was that level of, conf uh, of, um, of animosity that they had. And we can trace that animosity back to the earliest days, centuries before, when the Samaritans were Jews who were intermarrying with some of the exiles from the Assyrian conquest. The Assyrians were bringing different groups of people in, and they were being intermarried with the Jews that were there. And so those that hadn't intermarried were seeing the Samaritans as having a faulty bloodline. They were no longer pure. The Samaritans, on the other hand, they thought they were better than the Jewish people because they followed only what God gave them through Moses. So they saw that their faith was more pure. Their primary, their only sacred texts were the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, what the Jews would call the Torah. Now, you'd think that would be okay, right? Because at least it's God's word that they're looking at. But there's a problem with this. 
When you read the scriptures, you see from Genesis to Revelation that God is working with progressive revelation. He was telling Moses about himself and about his redemptive plan, and then later on he gave more information to the prophets and to others in the Old Testament, like King David. These folks wrote it down in the Old Testament. And then later on in, in Jesus' day, we read about how Jesus becomes the pinnacle, the ultimate, the clearest uh, picture of who God is and what he came to do. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 1. The author says, In the past, that's the Old Testament for us, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. Jesus is the picture, the full picture of who God is. When we look at him, we're seeing God, and we see the full picture of God's redemptive plan. Now imagine what it is if the only thing you have are the first five books of the Old Testament. At that point, your picture of God is lacking. It's, it's, it's incomplete. It's kind of like the Samaritans had chapter one of God's redemptive plan, and they didn't have chapters two through seven, which included the conclusion. So with all of this background swirling around, Jesus is talking to this woman from Samaria. And we pick it up here in verse 21. Jesus replied, oh, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I've read this text so many times over the years, and as I was reading in preparation for this message, two things stood out to me so strongly. First of all, I was grateful that Jesus didn't get sidetracked in some secondary debate about where do you worship, you know? Instead, he focused in on the main point, and he did so by using classic prophetic language, and then he tacked onto that language a surprising secondary piece. He said to the woman, Believe me, dear woman, the hour is coming. That's the classic prophetic language. Indeed, it is here now. That's the surprising second thing. It's already here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus said a big change is coming. In fact, the time has already come. The reality has happened. It's just not yet fully realized. He was saying there's a future expectation that flows out of a present reality, and that present reality is anchored to one thing that makes this new thing possible. And that one thing is the presence of Jesus the Christ. So the first thing that struck me was, how Jesus' presence makes it possible for us to worship in spirit and in truth. The second thing I found is this in this last line. God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I got a little caught up on that word must, you know? It kind of felt a little constricting. 
<laughs> and so I went into the Greek to find out what the word must means. And it means multiple things like must, should, ought, must by necessity. It's the same thing, man. And I just thought, wow, it challenged me. This is the way I must be worshiping God. It's what he wants me to do. So I thought, am I worshiping by spirit, in spirit, in the truth? Now, so the, the, the comment Jesus makes here is, is said, of course, in opposition to a very specific place to worship. So I think by these words, Jesus was telling her and, by, and us that it's possible for us to miss the point. The place we worship, the decorations we associate with worship, the, the rituals we use with worship, I mean, whether we worship on the platform or on the main floor, these things really don't matter. While we use rituals to express worship, we're not bound to them. Rituals, decorations, the liturgy we use, the location, these are all important, but when they take a primary importance, that's when we begin to lose our way. Our freedom in worship is centered around why we do it, not where we do it. It must be done in spirit and in truth. But what exactly does that mean? What did Jesus have in mind? Let's take a look at his words. Now, a literal translation of what he said would be that we are to worship spiritually and truly. And we know that, that spiritual worship was something that God required from the very start. He had that in, in, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament. And when we look at that, we realize that spiritual worship has to do with what's going on in the inner being, and not just what we are doing with our hands and with our actions. It's not just outward performance of acts and routines. So authentic spiritual worship involves an inward change of heart and not just outward observance. What we do should match what we're feeling. What we say should match what we do and what we feel. In other words, things about our lives begin to align up. They become the same color on the same side. They become ordered the way God wants them to be ordered. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 deepens our understanding a bit here. The author writes, Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God. A continual sacrifice. That's a living, living sacrifice praise, a living sacrifice offering, isn't it? What Brentley was talking about last week. We want to offer up a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name proclaiming with our words what's actually going on inside of our hearts, that we are aligned with him, that we are committed to him, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those who are in need. Our actions match our words, which match what's going on inside of our souls, inside of our hearts. For these are the sacrifices that please God. This is living sacrifice worship. And so suddenly, worship suddenly expands away from a, a holy location or a holy activity, and it begins to engage all of our lives. Yes, we still set aside specific time to gather with other people at a specific location so that we can corporately worship God, but then that worship that we experience together spills out into everything we think, say, and do in the rest of the, the week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's not about where we worship or how we worship. It's about who we are and whose we are 
And what we live for as the head, the heart, and the hands combine together in the common purpose of giving glory to God. Now, without Jesus giving us this Holy Spirit, we cannot truly worship God in the Spirit. We can try, but it's not going to come together well. We need Christ in the Spirit in us. Because as fallen human beings, we're all born as really mixed up Rubik cubes, right? <laughs> all the colors are out of place. And sometimes a couple of colors are aligned, but that's by accident. And none of our colors are, are aligned with what God wants us to do because we are fallen by nature, fallen by birth. And so it goes something like this. Think about it this way. Every one of us thinks thoughts. That's what it is to be human, right? We're thinking thoughts. Our mind has thoughts. And every thought you have is connected to a feeling. When the thought that you have is connected to a feeling that you like, it draws you toward that. You want to see more of it. You want to be part of that. But when the thought you have is connected to a feeling that's cold and distant and difficult, you want to repel yourself from that. So every thought we have is connected to a feeling. Every feeling is connected to a thought. You, can't ha you cannot have one without the other. Now, alongside these feelings and thoughts, there's something called the will. This is where we make our decisions. This is where something that didn't exist before is suddenly created because of something we choose to do. The platform is renewed. It wasn't renewed two weeks ago. It is now because a decision was made to do that, and we implemented that. The will could also be called your heart. It's the executive center. It's where we create. It's where we make decisions. So think about it this way. Here's, how, here's kind of how it works. This is very simplified, okay? So just, just, just bear with me here. Okay, so you're watching a movie, and as you're watching the movie, suddenly you come upon a scene where a person is making a milkshake, and you have a thought. I've had milkshakes before. <laughs> and that thought is connected to a feeling. I like milkshakes especially when they have chocolate chips, Oreo cookies, and some caramel sauce in them. This thought and this feeling then engages with the will. And the will says, yeah, let's do this thing. Let's create this milkshake. And so it engages in the body. The body hits the pause button on the movie and says, on it, you know, and goes ahead and gets it done. And all of a sudden, all these things are aligned in your life to accomplish a particular purpose. Now, what if the triggering thought is something that is clearly outside of God's intent for his people. Now recognize here, we're talking about a Christian, and so living inside of this Christian is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can engage us in any of these different places, any of these different colors, if you will, along the way. I have a hunch that the Holy Spirit does most of his work at the area of our will, because that's our heart, that's the executive center, the control center of our lives, and that's what Ezekiel says that God changes by the coming of his spirit. Gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh. So I'm thinking that's where a lot of work takes place. But I think it would go something like this. Let's say you're offended by something someone says in your small group. They said it to you directly. And you were quiet at first and you were mulling this thing over. And, and so you have a thought that says, I can't believe they think that about me. Man, they must think I'm an idiot. And, and this, this thought is connected to a feeling. And it's a feeling of anger, it's a feeling of shame, it's a feeling of wanting to hide. And so this thought and this feeling then go and engage the will. And the will, if the will agrees with it, it's going to have a choice. It's going to engage the body, and that body might go to get revenge. That body might go and start gossiping about, about this person. Or that body might go, for some of us, and say, I don't want to see them ever again. And they just kind of withdraw, 
and they leave the small group, and they have other reasons why they're going, and we don't see them again. Now, what happens if the will doesn't agree with this? It says, hold on. Thought, mind, you better think about this again. So the mind is given a chance to ponder this again. Now, if the mind doesn't have any other source of information at this time, it is going to get entrenched. It's just going to go back and forth over this thing until it gets hardened in its opinion. And we all know people who get there. But what if? What if the mind says, you know, I think I jumped a little too quick on this one. You know, I have not taken the, all these thoughts of, uh, captive and made them obedient to Christ. You know, and it's really... I really been, I, I need to fill in the missing information that I don't have with what is true and right and honorable, pure and lovely, excellent and praiseworthy. And what if the mind begins to think about things like Matthew 18 and Romans 12 and concludes that the way to show true love is to go and seek this person in reconciliation instead of revenge? If that's what happens, then all these thoughts that are now connected to the scriptures have all kinds of emotions and feelings that are connected to them that are different, and that these new thoughts and these new feelings then engage with the will, and the will then engages the body in a totally different way, and you end up with a Rubik's Cube, a life that's got colors aligned in a way that align with what the scriptures say and what God desires. So, I think that worshiping in the Spirit has to do with the Holy Spirit enlivening my spirit to fully align my inner world with my outer actions so that the totality of my life freely worships God no matter where I am or what I am doing. It's the Holy Spirit aligning my inner world with my outer actions so that the totality of my life freely worships God no matter where I am or what I'm doing. I think that's where the spirit side comes in. But what about truth? This is a little quicker for us. Part of the context of truth, of course, has to do with God's word, right? Your word says this, we think this, how do we do this? And so I think that worshiping God in truth is worshiping him in a way that reflects who he has revealed himself to be and what he has said he wants in our worship. So that, that's pretty simple. And I think it's important to note here that just like the Samaritans, every one of us carries less than a perfect understanding of who God is. None of us has a full revelation in our own minds and hearts. None of us is fully mature with a complete understanding. And yet, just like the Samaritan woman, no matter what the depth or shallowness of our understanding, right? Jesus went out of his way to go and seek out this woman that he wasn't even supposed to talk to. Just like that, he seeks us. He comes to us. He meets us where we are. He then accepts us as we are, and then helps us become who he intends us to be. So, while truth is definitely connected to Scripture, I think it also points to my own authenticity. And what I mean by that is that when I worship truly, I'm worshiping God for who he actually is, not for some other reason. Uh, I'm not worshiping to get the acclaim of other people. Now, in, in the early 90s, that's what was going on here in a number of cases at Covenant because we had some folks who were very influential in the community and in the business realm. And so we would have people become part of this congregation just so they could be seen by other people and that you were in the right place. You know, 
That's not authentically worshiping. That's not worshiping God truly. We don't worship God truly by wanting to get something from him or by gaining favor from him or for some other reason because it's a habit that I've been doing all my life. So we worship God for who he is alone. Think about it this way. Worshiping in spirit alone can lead us down paths of our own creation which can take us anywhere. A lot of error in that. Worshiping in truth alone can lead us down paths of legalism that will take us nowhere. So what we do is we worship God in spirit and in truth, which provides both freedom and guidance in how we give God glory with all of our lives. The spirit enlivens, the truth guides. This is worshiping freely, the kind of worship that the Father is seeking. And it all happens because of Jesus. So, we are born into this world as mixed up, twisted around Rubik's Cubes with the colors all over the place. And somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit comes in, grabs our cube, grabs our life, and begins manipulating the colors, working it out as we're having conversations, just doing our daily thing, working out the colors so that they begin to align more fully with what God wants and align more fully with how we are wired so that our head and our heart and our hands are working in concert. I mean, think about when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he told the, he told the disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, there we had something, the colors weren't properly aligned. He wants to align all of these things for God's glory so that we can reflect the character of the one whose image we bear. Now, unlike my own college experience, uh, where no one paid attention to what I was doing with a cube, <laughs> we are called to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, and to talk to the Lord about it, and to ask him what he wants us to do. So as we go through our day, something happens and we become aware of a color that seems out of place. We ask a question like, why is it that I get so angry when a person cuts me off on the road or a person cuts me off in mid-sentence? Why is it that I'm always looking for the shortest line or the fastest lane? Why do I complain so much? You know, sometimes these colors are out of sync with the Lord for decades, and the Holy Spirit brings it up to us. We say, wow, I've never seen that before, but it's true in my life. I wonder why that is, Lord. What's going on? Why do I worry so much? Why do I fret? Why is anger such a deep part of my daily experience? See, when the Holy Spirit highlights words or actions or emotions that are contrary to what the Lord desires, to his, to his uh, character, or to his teaching. Ask him why that is and what he wants you to do about it, because these colors are appearing for a reason. And when we pause long enough to engage the Holy Spirit with why he's bringing that to surface in us at this moment, when we pause long enough, that then becomes an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do his transforming work in us, the very work he wants to do, and the very work we desperately need. So I thought about how to, how to close this time out, and I thought, you know, maybe we could just do a little practice run on this. And I selected a hymn that um, is challenging. It's filled with truth. And as we sing this closing hymn, I just encourage all of us, invite you to just sit before the Holy Spirit as you're speaking these words of truth. Be aware of what's going on on the inside of your, of your soul. Do you really believe these things? Where is their dissonance? Where is their attraction? Where does it connect with you? Where does it not connect with you? And when you see these things, let the Lord speak to you about it. 
You know, be thou my vision, not be all else to me. Let nothing else in this world except the fact that you exist. Is that true for me? When we say that I am thy true son, what we're saying is that Jesus Christ has made me the rightful heir of all of God's blessings and is changing me from the inside out so that I reflect the character of my Father. Do I really believe that? How is that playing out in the rest of the world, the rest of my life? So many other things in this song. Just, just allow it to speak to you. And i got to say that nothing in this song allows me to say, yep, got that down. So that's kind of where I am. <laughs> There's nothing that I got, oh, I got that. So, so I'm not trying to push us into the slew of despond. Uh, I'm not trying to, to layer guilt upon us. What I'm doing is giving us an opportunity just to practice this a little bit because the Holy Spirit can show us those colors through hymns we sing, through cars we drive, in conversations we have throughout the day, allowing us to, to work with him as he aligns those colors and allows us to worship 24-7, 365 in freedom and in truth, in spirit and in truth. So with that, let's pray together and, and just enter into this time together. Lord, knowing that you are always with us and you love us so much that you are willing to meet us where we are and accept us as we are, Lord, we ask you now to help us grow to where you want us to be. Today and with every day and every moment of the rest of our lives, we want to bring to you all of who we are with all of our ugliness, all of our sin, all of our secrets, all of the colors that are just not aligned. We want to bring all of who we are all of who we know you to be, and allow that communion to transform us. So we surrender to you, Lord. Use this moment and every moment of our lives to help us worship you freely, no matter where we may be or what we may be doing.